There seems to be a persistent impulse in our society to gravitate towards histories that are uncomplicated. Our historical memory, or the stories we intentionally or unintentionally choose to remember or not remember, seems driven by a need to assign clean boundaries between good guys and bad guys, or to see clear, uncomplicated trajectories of positive change, and so forth. Unfortunately, that's not history. History is messy and often illegible. And if I've established anything here on the Writing Westward podcast, welcome, by the way, I'm your host, Brennan Rensink. It's that we revel in complexity and discomfort. I love histories that run against the grain of the assumptions that I've brought to the table. We will get a lot of that with our guest this month, Dr. Elena E. Roberts, as we talk about her multiple award-winning book, I've Been Here All the While, Black Freedom on Native Lands, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2021. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about writing Westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West, historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation. With me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else. All tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship, and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest and why we're talking to them. Dr. Elena E. Roberts is an assistant professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh, where she studies the intersection of Black and Native American life from the Civil War to the modern day. Her recent book, I've Been Here All the While, Black Freedom on Native Lands, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2021, won a number of prizes, including the Steubendick Great Plains Distinguished Book Prize from the Center of Great Plains Studies at the University of Nebraska, the John Ewers Award for the Best Book on North American Indian Ethno-History, and the W. Turntine Jackson Award for the Best First Book from the Western History Association, the Phyllis Wheatley Book Award in the Historical Era category granted by the Sons and Daughters of the United States Middle Passage, and was a finalist for the LA Times Book Prizes in the History category, and the Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize, granted by the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History and Gettysburg College. In I've Been Here All Along, Roberts digs into her own family's past to unveil the complicated histories of Indian slaveholders in Indian Territory, and the experiences of post-emancipation Indian freedmen and emigrating African Americans in Indian Territory. 
She reveals how the rhetoric and actions of settler colonial systems, usually ascribed to whites dispossessing native peoples of their lands and resources, were also employed by native peoples who were removed from the southeast to Indian territory. Later, government-supported citizenship and land-owning of formerly enslaved peoples casts them as settler colonial actors, engaged in further native dispossession. Roberts' Western gaze also extends our view of the Reconstruction era. While Northerners gave up on reconstructing the former slaveholding White South by 1877, they pursued various programs to reconstruct indigenous nations, former slaveholders, in Indian territory, and their relations with freedmen, well beyond 1877. Robert's work is discomforting in the best of ways, as it forces us to think of various historical groups in new contexts. The book is brief, but packs incredible heft into so few pages. Sometimes I am a bit resistant to buying into hype when a certain book starts creating inordinate amounts of buzz, but not this time. I highly recommend this text to any student of Western history. Even those not studying Black or Native or Southern Plains history will find a lot here to provoke new ways of thinking about their own work. It is worthy of the many awards it has won. Elena Roberts, welcome to Writing Westward. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to... Um, go over your multiple award-winning book. I've lost track. How many it won? Uh, it's only three and then a few finalists. Yeah. That's, that's so awesome. Um, I hope that, I hope that novelty of that hasn't worn off. I hope you're still excited about it. No, I'm very fortunate. Very grateful. Well, I wanted to start, um, by asking you to first give us kind of a quick, maybe 30 second overview of um, the pre-Civil War removal of Southeastern natives to the Southern Plains, um, and then the, the societies and economies that they built there in Indian Territory with the labor of enslaved African Americans. And then maybe with kind of that real broad backdrop uh, established for reader, uh, for, for listeners, then we can kind of uh, dig in. So what's, what's the context here in which your book uh, unfolds? 30 seconds. Okay. 60 um, seconds. <laughs> well, we're looking at five of the Indian nations who are perhaps the most well-known in the country, I think, um, who have interactions with Europeans and then Americans and are very known to these people and are very well regarded. And so we're coming in as they have established themselves as different from other Native people, uh, purposely and very strategically, and that they are willing to um, send their children to be educated in American schools, um, and that they're interested in intermarriage uh, with white traders and um, political figures and in learning from them, um, and that they are also interested in adopting slavery. So this is what was happening down in, in Georgia and Mississippi. Uh, they. Correct. This is why sometimes they're called the five civilized tribes, which is a phrase that I think a lot of us kind of wrinkle our noses at a bit. Um, <laughs> it's an outdated phrase for sure. Yeah. But there was something to it in that they had adopted lots of uh, the, the trappings of, of uh, Euro-American economy and society and, and things like that. Is that a correct generalization? 
Right. Uh, more so than many other Native people in the Southeast, they show that they were interested in and willing to change and adapt. So starting um, in the 1830s, not just those uh, five tribes, but uh, many tribes from the Southeast and from the Old Northwest are forcibly removed uh, out west of the Mississippi to what eventually is known as Indian Territory. So what is the the kind of economy that they set up there uh, with the enslaved African Americans that they bring with them? Well, they're already um, interested in cotton cultivation, um, corn cultivation, uh, kind of similar things to what we think of as uh, white southeastern or yeah, white southern plantation owners. Um, but they really kind of amp things up in Indian territory, and so the people who are wealthy in Mississippi and Georgia um, become wealthier in Indian territory and really start trading um, with white Americans more thoroughly. So, uh, removal was devastating. Uh, of and, course, uh, in, in many ways, but they, they rebuild and they actually uh, accelerate or, or build bigger than they had been in some ways down in the southeast. Right. Um, in fact, after removal um, and before the Civil War, uh, that period in the Cherokee Nation is noted as the Golden Age. Hmm. Albeit, the Renaissance. Yeah, albeit removed for, kind of from their original homelands. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is useful. This is the useful backdrop that we needed. So how I usually start interviews is by asking writers how they came to their topic. Um, for you, it, this is a, a very personal uh, history as you're a descendant of um, both natives and enslaved African-Americans um, that you're writing about and you write about some of your own ancestors. Um, can you tell us about your your personal journey of uh, encountering this family history and then eventually coming the, to the decision to, to to research and write about it? Yeah, so one of the kind of cathartic um, things about doing kind of tours about my book and talks about my book has been that I've been able to really kind of think through what happened when I was an undergrad, um, because as I was going through it, um, it didn't seem like, you know, it, it mattered that much, but I've really come to realize just how much it shaped the arc of my scholarship. Um, so as an undergrad at uh, UC Santa Barbara in California, um, I was really kind of lost, like confused about where I fit in the in the world and also at the university level. So, you know, who are the people I'm hanging out with? You know, what clubs do I join? Um, who do I hang out with and go to parties with? Um, and I didn't feel like I fit in any of the places I would assume. So, uh, you know, I didn't join the Black Student Union. Um, my family has white ancestry. I didn't join like the Irish Union. Um, instead, I really kind of sought out uh, Native student groups um, because this was kind of stories I had heard in my family, but I didn't know any real information. My dad didn't know. Um, and so as I began to look into these stories further and get like real information from people in Oklahoma, members of my family who had always had that knowledge and kept that knowledge. Um, I realized that that is where I fit in socially, like the people I felt most comfortable with, but also that that was where my career uh, might lie. And so as I did that research and realized that there was only a small amount of publications um, on slaveholding in Indian nations generally, but also specifically in the Chickasaw and Choctaw nations where my ancestors were held as slaves, I realized that I could really add something, uh, that it wasn't just 
you know, looking into my family history for my own personal means, but also that I could really add something to the conversation. So coming into it, what was, because you grew up in California, you note, I think in the epilogue, um, you didn't grow up in Oklahoma with those, uh, those branches of your family, uh, you know, kind of in, you know, regular constant contact. So mm -hmm. how, how did you self-identify before you got to college? Or, or were these kind of complicated, you know, uh, various um, heritages uh, not really on your radar until you got to college and at least started thinking critically about what, what to research mm. or who you are? Well, like many African-American families, my like just my immediate family looks very different phenotypically from one another. Like my father uh, is very light skinned, often confused for a white man. Um People say he looks like Santana as well. <laughs> um, whereas my mom is darker skinned than me, has hair that's more tightly coiled than my hair, um, and I'm somewhere in the middle. And so, like, it was very clear from my father that, like, of course, we have ancestry that is other than African American or Black. Um, and I wasn't sure if it was, like, just white ancestry or if it was Native ancestry. We have my dad told me the same stories that many African Americans hear about Native ancestry. Um, and Many of those are not actually true when you look deeper into them. And so I didn't think much of it. Um, I just identified as African-American, which is, of course, kind of an umbrella term that can encompass many things. So it wasn't until I looked into the history, talked to people in Oklahoma, um, and then looked at the own, like the actual documentation from my ancestors that I began to identify as Black and Chickasaw and Choctaw and white, um, all three of those really because that is how they identified. And that is kind of their history um, in terms of the nationalities they, they were part of. And so, yes, my family has Chickasaw ancestry, but I can't point to a document that shows that, just like many enslaved people can't. Um, but I've come to realize that they were part of the Chickasaw Nation regardless. And so I think that that is an important part of the way actually my my personal evolution came about um, because as an undergrad, I started researching through the lens of identity. So I wanted to know how do these people identify so I can know how I identify racially. Um, and then I, I realized that that's not really the way they were thinking. Like there weren't many people in the 1800s who would say, oh, I'm mixed race. Like that's not the way um, their language worked. And it became clear to me my senior year um, in college and then going into graduate school, that it was far more important for them to talk about land and to identify with a particular uh, space than necessarily um, to be called like Chickasaw or Choctaw, uh, as we would think of it like racially. Hmm. And so this continues on then through grad school. And uh, I assume that this book then grew out of what was your dissertation? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, um, you, you have a few kind of big concepts in the book that are probably worth um, defining or explaining a little bit um, for listeners. Uh, and the first is the, the framework of settler colonialism. Um, I already in the introduction, I already described that in some very broad terms for listeners. Um, but you use this as an interpretive lens to read these histories of uh, um, enslaved Choctaws. Um, 
uh, and Chickasaws and, and others, um, and a, a way to read their histories before the Civil War, a way to read uh, histories of Black citizenship and land ownership and Indian territory um, after emancipation and after the Civil War, that the compound native dispossessions that you extend all the way into the 20th century, um, and you use settler colonialism as, as the guiding framework, but you offer a little bit of a different definition of settler colonialism um, that expands the categories of who might be agents of that process or those processes. Um, can you explain a little bit about maybe what is the most traditional familiar definition of settler colonialism and then how you expand or employ that term a little bit differently for your for your project? Well, I think the like most traditional um, idea comes from you know someone like Patrick Wolf, um, who is looking at settler colonialism as an event, uh, something that kind of happens in a space. Uh, and at the beginning, we see how usually Europeans um, are impacting indigenous peoples, how they are uh, taking land, um, how there is murder, genocide, um, some would say, and then the replacement of their culture uh, with their own and the normalization of that new culture as actually indigenous. Um, and I, I don't disagree that that kind of first contact uh, is important, but my definition is kind of seeing it through as you know generations go by as the indigenous peoples in this place change uh, and some of them decide to really kind of incorporate the ideas that settlers have introduced into their own lifestyles and into their own ways of thinking um, and so looking at the chickasaws and choctaws and the way they adapt to slavery and take on ideas about black inferiority, um, as well as native savagery, and then use that against not just black people, but also other native people, made it very clear to me that there was something missing um, in these prior definitions that didn't allow us to really see how people on the ground relate to one another, especially people of color. So, so native peoples themselves in, in your stories um i mean so native land dispossession is like maybe the core function or outcome of settler colonialism but as you're moving through generations you're seeing instances now where native peoples themselves are are participating in that and dispossessing others or and buying into racial hierarchies all these are the things that generally we ascribe to white settler colonialists um co colonists um we might be able to uh see that in other uh, actors as well right um, you you know you mean you mentioned uh briefly that in some of the language that they use so uh when these uh, chickasaws choctaws and others from the southeast come out to uh indian territory in the southern plains uh it, there, there are already people there right caddos wichita's comanches kiowas all, all kinds um so what is the settler colonial language that they use to um, justify their uh, taking over of these lands, to justify their belonging to that land as opposed to the people who are already there? Um, how do, how, what kind of rhetoric do they use that struck you as, oh, th 
this is the same kinds of things that whites were using a few generations earlier, or the same things that whites were using when they uh, forced the removal. Um, what was it that, st that stuck out to you? Do you have any good examples to share? Well, there's language about land and there's language about the native people there. So language about land, uh, Cherokee chief John Ross uses the word wilderness multiple times. Uh, wilderness, of course, is very identifiable as a word used by and introduced by Europeans to say, like, look, native people haven't done anything here. They haven't developed it. Uh, therefore, you know, it's it's ours for the taking, essentially, um, because clearly they don't claim it as their own and are not using it. Um, and then with Native people, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw leaders um, are talking about Plains people as uncivilized, as savage, um, and really kind of ignoring that, like, of course, these people are like very angry and going to be violent toward you because you are literally living on lands they claimed as their home. Was there any awareness at the time that you can see in the documentary record of, I mean, irony is maybe not the right word, but... This does strike us today as we read back uh, as somewhat shocking, right? D did they see the the discomfort in employing the very language or justifications that had been used against them? Uh, I have not seen any recognition of that. Um, I mean, especially for people like uh, future Choctaw Chief Peter Pitchlin, he has been educated in you know white schools. Like he really does believe that. Um, the Choctaws are essentially different from these other Native people, that they are doing the right thing by, you know, learning about Greek mythology um, and becoming Christians. And these other Native people, like, really are inferior and, and completely different from them because they're not. Do you think this is something that is more broadly applicable, um, not just in this example on the Southern Plains, kind of in your broader studies of uh, Western and Native history. Do you see? Do you, do you see this dynamic happening elsewhere? Or is this kind of unique to this this situation here? Um, well, Kathleen Duval in her book, uh, I mean, is also kind of talking about Cherokees moving into other places like in Arkansas um, and a, like a little of the Midwest. So for sure, this happens in other places. Um, but I, I think with the five tribes in the Southeast and then in Indian territory, it's specific because they are very interested in the economy of slaveholding, uh, which necessitates an idea of a racial hierarchy where in other places, native people are interested in like some aspects of Euro-American culture but you can see that there's not kind of a full buy-in, um, whereas I would argue that in the five tribes, perhaps because there's such a degree of white intermarriage, there is a very clear buy-in, um, especially from mixed-race people, but not exclusively. And, you, and there's a buy-in to chattel slavery, which was, I mean, slavery existed across Native America in various right. forms. And even amongst the five, those five tribes, the Seminoles, you write about um, didn't quite, uh, I mean, one of the reasons that the Creeks split was uh, that they had a kind of a different understanding of how they wanted to interact with, with African-American peoples. It wasn't the chattel slavery model. It was more, uh, more fa I mean, familiar indigenous models of, of intermarriage and kind of acculturation um, of enslaved or uh, various forms of unfree 
people. Right. Um, but so for the rest of the of those five tribes, though, they're buying into uh, chattel slavery uh, requires racialization. In definitely, um, especially for like large scale slaveholders. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this is part of what is so powerful and shocking about your book is, uh, and I mentioned this in the introduction as well, you know, we like, probably subconsciously, I think as a culture, we gravitate towards historical narratives that are really easy to understand, very clean cut. There's white hats and black hats, good guys, bad guys, um, oppressors and the oppressed, and, and they're very clear definitions. And uh, I mean, you write about within your own family tree, you can see that at various times, um, the successes of uh, your Black ancestors came at the expense sometimes of your Native ancestors and vice versa. Um, that's really, really messy and really uncomfortable to think and read about, um, which is why maybe the book is winning so many awards. Um, you're you're uh, forcing us to think or to ask really hard questions and to step away from binaries that maybe are a little bit too comfortable to sit with. Um, yeah. And I, I, I think because of people like Ty Miles and Faye Yarbrough and Celia Naylor, um, the native American slaveholding part maybe isn't as surprising. Like it's not that big of a leap. Um, but the African American part uh, was, Kind of a big deal, I think, for a lot of people who read this book, um, especially because the book came out um, in the midst of the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre. And so there was renewed attention in Oklahoma, Black Western history, this like celebratory narrative of Black entrepreneurship um, and residence in the West, uh, which is super important, obviously. But my book is kind of asking people to you know, think through what it means. Okay, now you know this history, but like, let's look even deeper because whose land are these Black people living on and what is their relationship to those Native people? Yeah, this is why it's so hard. It is something to celebrate. Like African-Americans were able to, you know, went up to Oklahoma and Colorado and other places and they founded their own towns, uh, Black-controlled towns with Black-controlled businesses. Or, you know, we have, yeah, like uh, Black Wall Street on Tulsa. We have these what these stories that are we're celebrating and um because we want to celebrate them we are hesitant to th think critically um so uh and this is what encompasses a lot of the second chapter of your book is so if we've already thought about how some of the five tribes uh became agents of settler colonialism and dispossessing other natives you know out on the southern plains um post emancipation uh these Choctaw, Chickasaw, and other, you know, former enslaved peoples, freedmen, uh, become agents of settler colonialism as well. Um, uh, one intriguing aspect, you know, you say that the federal government's support of Black citizenship and land ownership um, was uh, mobilized. I think the term used was mobilized and legitimized. Um, by the federal government as a way to further dispossess Native peoples. So post-emancipation, walk us through some of these processes that are taking these racial hierarchies and not quite turning them on their head, but 
kind of mixing things around it again. And what's African-Americans role then as settler colonists? So this is part of my argument that uh, we have to consider what happens in Indian territory after the Civil War, a reconstruction project, and that it is more successful than it is in the United States because there is a, a, a different kind of stakeholding, um, and that is white Americans want this land. Um, white American politicians want to give white Americans that land. Um, but the people in the Secretary of Interior's office are interested in also seeing people of African descent as settlers, as people who can also be part of this kind of human agricultural dream um, within the American psyche. So as we get out of the Civil War, we have treaties um, with all five tribes that ends officially kind of the hostilities between themselves and the United States. Um, and the U.S. really uses the end of the Civil War to strong arm the five tribes into treaties that really kind of screw them over. Um, so they have to give up a lot of the land that they have moved on to and um, that they are promised they would always be able to keep and would never be settled on by white Americans. So that's uh, taking care of the goal of getting that land eventually to white Americans. Um, but then the Secretary of Interior and the Commission of Indian Affairs also make sure that that treaty uh, takes care of people of African descent. And so it makes sure that they're freed um, and makes sure uh, that they are uh, made citizens or um, kind of on equal footing with tribal members and that they get land. And so taking some of that land that would go to white Americans and giving it to black people is something that like was unable to, um, hmm, that white Americans were unable to do in the United States because they really were unable to see themselves giving white American land to black people. Like no matter how badly they may have felt about um, slavery, uh, that was just kind of too radical for most Republicans. But with these kind of few men involved in these treaties who did think that land ownership was the key to kind of living productively in society, uh, they could see giving Native American land to Black people. And that is partially because they didn't see Native Americans as equal to white Americans. And so even though previously the five tribes had enjoyed this kind of distinction and being seen as more civilized, uh, now the fact that they're Native Americans is working against them because they're still kind of not civilized enough. Um, and conveniently, that then allows white Americans to think differently about giving their land away. And so it's it's helping people like my ancestors, but obviously it's also hurting my Native ancestors and really kind of showing that even when people of color buy into this settler system, it ultimately is not meant to benefit them ever, really. And so this is how you extend Reconstruction um, all the way up to, I mean, you go all the way up to uh, Oklahoma statehood, 1907, by arguing that while, like, you know, what white Northern Republicans gave up on reconstructing the South in 1877, um, they looked out to the Southern Plains at another group of slaveholders that needed to be reformed or reconstructed, right? These Native peoples. And they're like, oh, we could still do we could still work through some reconstruction out there, right? Like the, the North didn't have the stomach for, you know, for doing it in the South anymore. But kind of that racial pecking order, uh, they, they they were still willing to do it out in the 
on the planes. Um, so this overlaps with some other things going on. Um, 1887, we have the Dawes Act, uh, which uh, some, some listeners may not be familiar with, but this was a piece of legislation uh, aimed at ending um, kind of communal tribal ownership of land and pushing Native peoples to individual land ownership. And then all of the so-called surplus land could be opened up for uh, conveniently for <laughs> white settlement, right? And this leads to the uh, the loss of millions of, of millions of acres of lands for Native peoples. So how does the African-American freedmen situation, both uh, for those who had been enslaved, say, by Choctaws, um, as well as um, African-Americans who um, uh, were from the South, but were not uh, in these Native tribes, but who move out to Oklahoma, how do they they're getting land ownership. How does that fit in with this broader, in the broader backdrop of the Dawes Act, the Dawes Severality Act, and uh, this push to um, give non-Native peoples access to Native lands? So the Dawes Act, um, ultimately, when it is eventually applied to the five tribes, and um, those lands then become part of, like, the land runs, um, and then kind of the Homestead Act, all of these, all of these land that is opened up um, through various acts of legislation. Uh, African-Americans are interested in different parts of the West. And like there have been focuses on, of course, places like Kansas and um, California. But Indian Territory is especially attractive to them because uh, they're aware that there are already Black people there. Like um, because of Black newspapers, because of informal networks of information, they know that Native Americans, some Native Americans, own slaves. Uh, they know that those Black people were part of the treaties after the Civil War and that those treaties gave them land. Um, and so because they see that in Indian Territory, the U.S. government is protecting these people um, kind of on Native people to you know not be violent toward them, uh, that they will send out uh, people like John Sanborn to kind of check on what's going on, uh, that these people have political representatives, um, that they're still able to vote uh, after like the 1880s when most African-Americans aren't able to in the South. Um, they see that there is a far different context in this Western space and they they want in, they want to be part of this. And so um, Indian Territory becomes a place where thousands and thousands of African-Americans go to settle um, right beside Indian freed people and to create communities sometimes with them. So they 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 were they were conscious of this uh, dynamic that the federal government was supporting black rights more vigorously. Is that a, a correct word to use in Indian territory, like in the context of giving them native land as opposed to other places in the West where it would be land that perhaps uh, uh, was a you know being competed for with uh, with other whites that they viewed it uniquely as that. Definitely. Um, they knew that like Indian free people, um, if they had uh, an issue with like a white person squatting on their land, um, they would write to like the Secretary of Interior or um, the Dawes Commission and, you know, something would usually be done or there was a process um, that was not part of, you know, other and Western settlement. Hmm. We do have this. So we have this odd moment, though, where we have some freedmen, uh, you know, they have U.S. citizenship via the 14th Amendment. Uh, 
and, and the native peoples do not have U.S. citizenship. Um, but some of the native nations in Indian Territory are uh, denying their freedmen tribal citizenship. Some of them are enacting their own versions of, you know, black co black codes like we're familiar with from, uh, from the uh, Deep South. I mean, and elsewhere. Um, how are African Americans navigating these dynamics of? In some ways, they have more um, rights vis-a-vis -vis the federal government, but they're being very uniquely oppressed by the Native nations that they're living with. It's a very strange dynamic. How do they navigate these waters? Okay, well, remember, I do make the distinction between African-Americans and Indian freed people. So Indian freed people are yes. not African-Americans. Um, but in the Chickasaw and Choctaw nations, for sure, these are people who like immediately try to instate um, essentially like the same apprentice system um, that much of the South does. And so they definitely don't see themselves as changing with the times or not interested in the federal government telling them what to do when it comes to black people. Um, and so my ancestors living in the Chickasaw Nation, uh, I write about how they have to make a decision. Like, do they want to stay in a nation where they don't have citizenship, where there is still discrimination? Or do they want to go into the United States where, yes, there is this legal difference? There is kind of more opportunity, at least in the political realm. Um, and they make a decision to stay. Other Chickasaw freed people do not. Um, but in the Cherokee, Creek, and Seminole nations, um, there definitely is a different scenario in which uh, black people are able to be involved in tribal government. And, you know, yes, there is still certainly discrimination. Yes, there are Cherokees, for example, who try to keep them from uh, getting the money from the sale of the lands that they're supposed to get. Like it is an ongoing struggle. But there you have the federal government who eventually rules no Cherokee nation. You have to give these black people money like they're still interested in intervening on their behalf. So is there a difference between how uh, uh, Indian freedmen navigate this versus um, African-Americans who are emigrating into Indian territory? They're, they're all facing some anti-Black uh, discrimination. Uh, is there a difference because of their backgrounds and how they navigate that and whether they decide to stay or leave or where to go, what to do? For African-Americans, there is, I forget the actual term, it's not circular migration. Um, when they face discrimination in Kansas, they go to Indian territory. When they face it in Indian territory, they go to California. Like it's um, definitely you have African-Americans who are looking for a racial paradise that doesn't exist. Um, of course, people, you know, who are Indian free people are more tied to this particular space and more likely to just kind of wait it out. Um, and like understanding that, being there is more important than necessarily like looking for a better place. But I think African-Americans generally are less reliant on the federal government because they trust them less and they don't really have a reason to trust them. Um, whereas Indian freed people have a history of government intervention and they're aware that like even the fact that they're free is because of the federal government um, in a different way um, than in the United States. Um, but for sure, African-Americans, you know, do write to their representatives, uh, like meaning African-Americans who um, have connections with people in the federal government. Um, they are advocating for an all black state because they feel that that would give them more autonomy um, and freedom from discrimination. So there is 
maybe kind of different avenues of advocacy for the two groups, I'd say. Are they explicitly saying we want our own state, kind of like Indian territory is its own thing? Are they using that as an analog in their arguments to the federal government? Uh, I would say a better analog is the state of Sequoia, which uh, the five tribes are advocating for, um, because they definitely do want to be a state, because a state, of course, has representation uh, federally, um, and then has more uh, resources given to it. So they want to be part of the U.S. in a way that is unlike Indian Territory. How do um, Chickasaws and Choctaws or, or other of, of these five tribes react to um, the federal government's support of Black citizenship, Black land ownership, and so forth? Anger, resentment, uh, fear for some of them, because that support means increasing Black migration. Uh, some ambivalence, honestly. Um, I think some people kind of accept it as uh, changes coming. We might eventually just become um, absorbed into the United States. And so it's kind of expected that because there is no more slavery in the United States, that there would be no more slavery here. Um, so this is part of an ongoing discussion in the five tribes about basically what's going to happen to the space now. Um, you know, because some of us fought for the Confederacy, we've now lost, um, we're being treated as kind of vanquished foes. Uh, we don't maybe have the leverage that we used to with the United States. You know, do we want to try to create our own state? Uh, we're probably not going to fight militarily. Um, you know, what are our options? And as the federal government makes it clear that they are, at least until statehood, going to kind of support uh, the Black people in these nations, I think they see that their their position is kind of fading, their um, distinction amongst Native people. So down in the in the Reconstruction South, we see this violent backlash with the emergence of the Ku Klux Klan and all kinds of political violence uh, in opposition to the you know federal support for for freedmen. Uh, does anything like that erupt in Indian territory? Any kind of like overt uh, political violence or organizing against uh, African Americans or uh, or Indian freedmen? Uh, well, this is actually a part of my book that uses um, some of the dissertations done um, by various students on Oklahoma racial violence um, and Oklahoma territory racial violence. And those dissertations found that there really isn't that much violence between Native and Black people or like from Native people um, on Black people. I'm not sure if I'm phrasing that right, <laughs> uh, but you understand what I mean. Um and really, Oklahoma Territory and the increased white migration brings, you know, white Americans who then are kind of pulling together paramilitary groups that later show up as, you know, for example, the KKK um, after Oklahoma statehood. So, yes, there are, of course, incidences of violence, but from the information that is out there as of now, no, I would not say there is kind of the concerted effort to keep Black people from being part of like the political life of these nations. So you've already described some of the uncomfortable, well, at least what makes us uncomfortable, uh, usage of settler colonial language used by 
southeastern natives uh to justify their their belonging uh on the southern plains um do you see or can you give us examples of how african americans also used language or rhetoric to, settler colonial language to justify their land ownership which was further dispossessing native peoples well, one of the craziest examples I found uh, was Frederick Douglass in um, several speeches that he gave where he's really talking about how the federal government should support African-Americans making a space for themselves, a home for themselves in the West uh, through supporting their land settlement financially. But in those speeches, he really talks about how, you know, basically this land is kind of for the taking because native people aren't civilized enough to do something with it. Uh, and instead of looking at a connection between white and native people, the federal government should really be focusing on the connection between white and black Americans that has been cultivated over you know, generations of enslavement. Frederick Douglass, is there pushback from, from these native tribes to that kind of rhetoric? I looked so hard for that, and I really could not find anyone kind of directly, uh, certainly not directly referencing Douglas, but really uh, even referencing calls for an all-Black state in Indian Territory. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's maybe in someone's papers at some point, uh, but there is a lot of talk, especially in the Chickasaw and Choctaw Nations, because they're the smallest, about kind of being squeezed out by Black migration and the fear of being seen as Black um, because they have growing numbers of freed people and they are not growing at the same rate themselves. At its most extreme, what is the demographic ratio of Native to African-American or Indian freedmen? Like, is, the, is that fear founded? Were the numbers tipping against them? They are founded. Um, gosh, ratios. Now you're asking me to do math. Um, <laughs> it's like several, like, let's say several thousand Chickasaws to like 10 to 11,000 freed people um, and like exploding from there. Wow. So there, there was a real fear here. And they already, they, they were the smaller uh, of those tribes. So they already were aware of maybe they had a heightened sensitivity to being kind of squeezed out or outnumbered not right the, the chickasaws were the smallest and they also had the highest ratio of slaves in their nation to begin with so how long after the civil war um does it take for um uh because we, we see we do see the rise of a lot of uh, black towns um, and the, this increased uh, immigration uh, out to Indian territory of African Americans. Um, how long until that uh, that balances back out, or maybe it doesn't? Because then we, ha I mean, your last chapter is about the influx then of white uh, settlers who then come out. Maybe that I mean, that's kind of the missing component that we probably should should move to. Um, I mean, you write how both natives and blacks. Uh, we have these examples of them exercising their their freedoms, but in a way, as you write through the, their claims of legitimacy to Western lands, more than necessarily their claims to political rights. Like that's how they frame their exercise of freedom, that we belong on this land. We have the right to use this land. Um, 
But with the Dawes Act, we have this, you know, these waves of white settlers that come out to Indian territory before statehood in 1907. So how does that introduction of a growing white population impact African-American, Indian freedmen, and Native American kind of exercises of political power or or freedoms uh, with this huge new influx of white settlers? Well, with white Americans come their uh, racism and racist legislation. So Oklahoma statehood, um, and actually before that, Oklahoma territory is the beginning of the forced kind of segregation laws. Um, so Oklahoma, like the very first law is um, a law that segregates educational facilities, um, schools. So it's really the the end of the federal government kind of prioritizing um, black rights and then the beginning of uh, this kind of second tiered citizenship, um, especially for people of African descent. For Native Americans, uh, they weirdly kind of become grouped into the white group for some purposes of segregation. So it's this kind of kind of a three-tiered system in some places uh, and then in others it's only two, uh, but it's far more complex in Indian territory than maybe in other parts of the South because the five tribes do still have some kind of autonomy and some kind of influence um, versus many other Native peoples who just kind of just get lumped into the colored um, section or group. Um, so for like voting, uh, people of African descent and Indian nations who had uh, previously been able to vote you know, all of a sudden there's the grandfather clause in Oklahoma, um, which comes before the grandfather clause in many other places of the South, which many people don't know. Um, and so this Western space is actually kind of pioneering Southern discrimination um, in a sense, in a really interesting way. Hmm. So how does this, uh, these dynamics change relationships between Native peoples and, uh, you know, and, and freedmen? They definitely don't like start to see themselves as like, oh, we're in the same boat now. Um, if anything, they are, well, especially the Chickasaw and Choctaw nations are kind of happy to jump into a system that allows them to more kind of overtly discriminate against freed people. Um, so the Chickasaws have never kind of even like uh, gave any money for black schools. And so, um, Chickasaw free people have to fundraise themselves, uh, and then they're only able to go to their own black schools that they establish for themselves, uh, which then allows the Chickasaws and Choctaws to not have to kind of make any excuses for not providing for them anymore. Um, when it comes to like how that changes the social life and political life of free to people in these Indian nations, actually, I think that is a book that remains to be written. And I think it's very necessary because that time from like Oklahoma statehood to the sixties and seventies, uh, no one really knows like what black life is like in Indian nations. Um, because the idea is that, Oh, like these, you know, the, the five tribes don't really exist as independent sovereignties in this period of time. Um, the federal government picks their tribal leaders. Uh, they're not able to do much of anything without getting approval from the federal government. 
But certainly there are still Black people who identify as Native in that time period. There are still Black people who want to be part of these tribes. Um, and just like there's like Native advocacy for political representation. Um, and then, of course, in that period of time, Native Americans get the right to vote. So there's a lot going on in Native nations that they're like there needs to be work on for sure to really, I think, understand that transition fully. Are there good sources, good archives? from which people could, someone could build that kind of study? I think a lot of that is going to happen in oral histories. Um, like there are several prominent genealogists in the Chickasaw and Choctaw Freedmen communities. Um, Terry Lagon, Angela Walton-Raji, people who have collected oral histories and themselves have done a lot of genealogies for a lot of freed people, um, helped people, including myself. Uh, and I think... I think the answer lies in that kind of work rather than maybe in archives, unless it's like maybe the papers of individual tribal leaders. I love how um, confounding and confusing and messy this all is. I still don't know exactly where to sit with all of this. And that's the kind of history I like best, the history that um, that is discomforting and that uh, causes me to sit and uh, think further and this book uh has definitely definitely done that um as we wrap up i'm curious if we were to zoom way out um what are you know say for people studying you know other places in the west not studying the southern plains um what are some lessons be it methodological or thematic uh, from your work that you think we should be applying more broadly uh, as people who think or write about the West? Hmm. That's a question I've never been asked, I don't think. All right. I like uh. asking you <laughs> new questions. I mean, for me, the obvious, the, the low-hanging fruit response would be, you know, that that we, we need to, to uh, problematize a lot of our familiar narratives and realize that there are uncomfortable things. It's not all good guys and bad guys. It's It's more complicated. Well, now I can't say that. <laughs> uh, you could say it more eloquently. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, for sure. Like, and that is, I mean, not even just applicable to Western history. Like, that's what I try to ask of every scholar I come into contact with or like every person who listens to me speak um, that I think sometimes we don't realize the boxes that we're in until like, you know, we read a source or like we're talking to someone outside of our discipline. Um I mean, just sticking in the kind of African-American historical narrative, we're so focused on political rights. And, you know, obviously, yes, it makes sense why, like, literally people have died for the right to vote, um, which is so important to recognize. But Native American history, Native studies really got me thinking about the importance of land, got me thinking about um, oral histories as they relate to the way people have always talked about land and space. Uh, and so really I was only able to apply that to the kind of black reconstruction narrative because I, I had that knowledge of both of these fields and we don't always get that. Like most people don't get that. So talking to scholars from outside of your area, going to talks that maybe look interesting, uh, but you wouldn't have looked at them at first glance, uh, I think is so important for, especially grad students who are kind of, you know, you've just finished your dissertation and you're like, okay, let me just hop into my book. Like maybe take the time to look outward first. 
because it, it'll force you to ask different questions, new questions, uh, or use, and like, like, yeah. use new methodologies, like you say, from Native studies, you pulled things into African-American studies that you probably wouldn't have otherwise. For sure. That's powerful. Uh, I think that's a good lesson for all of us. We do get stuck in our boxes, not just us as scholars, but we stick our historical, um, the historical characters and the events that we're studying, we put them in boxes that um, rarely, if ever, uh, do, do real justice to the complexity of, of the historical event or character, right? It's always a little more complicated and we're just always trying to simplify things and make it easy, make things legible. Um, uh, but in so doing, I think we've, we've, you know, square pegs and round holes or however that saying goes, you know, sometimes we're missing out on a lot. And I think your book definitely demonstrates the, a, a slew of narratives that I think were just overlooked for a long time because they didn't quite fit into what we're familiar with. Well, uh, congrats on the book. Congrats on the many awards. And uh, thank you so much for uh, taking some time this morning to, to chat. Thank you. And uh, we will look forward to um, uh, what stuff that you work on next. And uh, uh, personally, I hope we'll, we'll be able to cross paths. We crossed paths in an elevator briefly <laughs> a couple months ago. Um, but hopefully at a future conference, we can have uh, time, more time to chat in person. But this has been great, Elena. Likewise. All right. We'll take care. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through. Or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, dot org, 
or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers. Cheers.